0: Coming soon to own on video cassette. Back on the Y2K front, despite all of the assurances that the Y2K computer problems are under control. Team
1: debut of Star Wars to be the opening act for a multi-billion dollar summer show. Only one question remains. Just how many box office records can one movie break?
0: You take the blue pill. The story ends i see dead people malkovich malkovich you take the red pill you stay in wonderland and i show you how deep the rabbit hole goes i will not apologize to what i need i will not apologize for what i want five four three two one happy
1: 1999 Welcome to 1999, The Year That Rocks Cinema. My name is Jared Stossel. My name is Andrew Tucker. And this is the podcast where we do a deep dive into every film released from the year 1999, getting down to the core of why this was one of the most influential years in all of cinema. And this week, oh boy, we have a very timely film, 1999's Virus. Ooh. But it's not about coronavirus. Um...
0: Well, obviously, Jerry, they didn't have coronavirus in 1999. Well, they had they had strains of coronavirus, I guess, because that's, of course, the general term. Yes. Anyway.
1: But the Simpsons also predicted everything, so who fucking knows? Somebody go back and look through this on Disney Plus and see if they <laughs> did predict it, because they probably did. Um, No, this is about the worst virus of all. Man. Yep, yep, <laughs> you and me. It's such a cliche 90s, like, even 80s uh, like plot line, but it's, um, okay. So let me just first reaction on this before we get into the stats on this. This was heralded as one of the worst movies of all time. Did
0: you think that it was that horrible? No, but when I have zero expectation, it's hard for it to be worse than my expectation.
1: I mean, I've seen some really bad films. I, I like... man i love dana carvey but i had to sit through the master of disguise that was a bad movie love you dana
0: um that is much worse than this troll 2 is much worse than this
1: uh troll 2 which also has nothing to do with the first troll which is what makes it even crazier
0: no and Um, there's not even a single troll in the movie because they're actually goblins but hey i didn't write it so (laughs) um all right let's uh get into this and set the
1: scene Virus was released on January 15th, 1999. It was directed by John Bruno and written by Dennis Feldman, Chuck Farrer, and Jonathan Hensley. Brief synopsis, when the crew of an American tugboat boards an abandoned Russian research vessel, the alien life form aboard regards them as a virus which must be destroyed. And I'm very excited to hear what your breakdown of this film is, so please enlighten us.
0: Okay, so we start things off Aboard the academic Vladislav Volkov, which is a Russian research vessel in the South Pacific. And there are, as you would expect for a Russian research vessel, a shitload of Russian people on it. And they appear to be having some kind of very urgent conversation with an orbiting space station called the Mir. And I say they appear to be having an urgent conversation because unless you actually speak Russian... There's absolutely no way to tell, because for some reason, there's only subtitles on like one sixteenth of the dialogue in this scene. I'm serious. They, they caption like three things, and then it's just fucking you figure it out. Yeah. this this dosvidani that Something's going on. Anyway.
1: It'd be interesting to use Duolingo when watching this film and just see what it spits back out.
0: It, well, we have a little story about that in just a bit, so we will get to a little bit more of this Russian scene. Yes. Um, but anyway... Up at the space station, there's some kind of weird energy source traveling through space, and it's all, like, pink and plasma-y, and it strikes the space station, and it kills the cosmonauts on board because when they're from Russia, you call them cosmonauts, but otherwise, you call them astronauts. Anyway, uh, the whatever this energy source is basically, like, faxes itself or emails itself or Bluetooths itself down onto the Volkov, and just starts fucking shit up down there on the ship. So, a week later, there's this crew of dopey American people, and they're driving a tugboat in the middle of the open ocean in an extremely violent typhoon. So, when I say they're dopey, that's what I'm talking about. Their drunk, vaguely Irish, vaguely Scottish, mostly American-sounding captain, Robert Everton, is hauling some kind of unidentified, mind-your-business type of cargo which appears to be very valuable, but is also uninsured for some reason. And he seems to be at odds with pretty much everyone else on the ship, including the Activia yogurt lady and Alec Baldwin's brother, who are also on the ship. The storm obviously just fucking wrecks this little tugboat because it's not supposed to be in the open ocean in the middle of a typhoon and the cargo all sinks to the bottom of the ocean and then there's this scene where everton is sticking a gun in his mouth to blow his fucking brains out and for a moment it's hard to tell whether that's everton's character giving up hope or donald sutherland realizing he's made a huge mistake (laughs) by being in this dumb fucking movie but either way it happens and right when he's about to pull the trigger something happens that changes their fate as Merida would say the crew's <laughs> luck seems to turn around when they happen across the abandoned Falkov, which they are able to identify through a convenient book that just so happens to have pictures and descriptions of like every ship ever. Like they see this boat and they're like, what boat is that? It looks Russian. And it's like, yeah, no shit. What gave it away? The giant Russian letters on the side. And then Jamie Lee Curtis is like, let me look it up in my magic ship encyclopedia. And she does. And then they know everything about it. So anyway, they climb aboard and they're like hey fuck it we're gonna put a lien on this boat and get 30 million dollars or 300 million dollars or some exponent of three and a million dollars i don't remember um so anyway i don't i don't know the ship is dead in the water and so they decide they're gonna get the power turned back on and once they do that they're ready to rock and roll get the fuck out of there and go get their cash but not really because shit starts to go haywire first there's these little robots that look like wheelie from transformers and they start showing up and they like some of them kind of look like the little doll thing that crawls out from under sid's bed in toy story (laughs) and they're just like little tinker toy guys walking around the ship and everyone's like what the fuck are those and then there's these bigger like terminator looking cyborg things that start showing up and one of them is like the repurposed corpse of their friend squeaky so then they're really like what the fuck and then they find a Russian woman hiding in a closet and she eats a granola bar really quick. And then she warns him that all this shit is going on in the boat. And like most Americans, they just ignore the facts and keep pretending like everything's going to be fine and going about their business. But guess what? It's not fine. And Everton makes a deal with the robot people to get turned into some kind of cyborg on purpose. Cause he's like, Hey, you guys know what you're doing around here. Let me join up with y'all. Um, and so like, after that somebody gets shot with a nail gun and then there's this evil giant Goliath robot and he kills some guys. And then one dude falls off the boat in a storm. And then the Russian woman sacrifices herself to kill the big robot alien or whatever the fuck it is. Cause they say it's an alien, but you never actually see anything other than some lightning and some sparks. So Hey, who knows? And then the not Alec Baldwin guy, And Jamie Lee Curtis strapped themselves to a rocket-propelled ejector seat and escaped the exploding ship. Because, of course, why the fuck would they do anything else? And that's the end of the movie. But wait a second. You're going to say, you just explained the entire plot of a movie called Virus, and you didn't even use the word virus one time. Yep, I fucking (laughs) know. Because there's no virus in the movie. It's not about a virus at all. Okay, maybe the the shit going on with all the electronics on the ship is a computer virus but like no they told you it's an alien life form so that's not right and then nobody's sick so not that kind of virus either so you know what the fuck
1: that was beautifully done and I think that uh, explained every I think you managed to put in every single plot hole or like like storytelling device that was used as a way to just like what ship is that oh well here's the answer it happens to be in this book like i think all of that just fit into that summary very succinctly so
0: There's a lot of that in there i think i thought more about this movie writing that little synopsis than they did writing the movie itself
1: speaking of writing the movie let's get into the inspiration and writing of this film interestingly enough from our research on this Virus is actually a comic book movie. But there's a little bit of a chicken or the egg scenario going on in here. Um so are you ready to climb into the way way back machine, Andrew? Yes, I am. Okay, here we go. So, it's the early 90s. Okay. Pearl Jam is on the radio. Okay. Salute Your Shorts is still airing on Nickelodeon. Oh, cool. Hurricane Andrew is tearing through the Gulf Coast.
0: That's my boy.
1: <laughs> God damn it. I thought you were going to say, not so cool, but then I realized you share a name. And so anyway, all this going on. This 30-something-year-old guy named Chuck Farrer decides that now is a great time to sit down and write a screenplay for a film. Chuck is a former Navy SEAL, and he has already at this point had some screenwriting success in his post-military career. With uncredited work on Clint Eastwood's Sudden Impact in 83, and credited work on Louis Teague's Navy SEALs and Sam Raimi's Dark both in 1990. So, anyway, he sits down to write this original screenplay about an alien life form that takes over a Chinese Navy research vessel. Once on board, the life form reconfigures the ship and starts to propagate itself by making various creatures out of both the ship's mechanical parts and the dead bodies of its crew members. Eventually, a salvage ship shows up, and its small crew has to deal with the life form or to be taken over as well. He calls this story, Virus.
0: But wait, Jared. In one breath, you said this was a comic book movie, and then in the next breath, you said it was an original screenplay. So what the fuck, did- I I did. I did say that. Um... Well, let me tell you.
1: Well, there, this is where that whole sort of chicken or the egg thing came into play that I mentioned earlier. So, while Farr wrote the original story as a script in the early 90s, he didn't think that Hollywood was capable of achieving the special effects required for the film that he'd envisioned. So, and since he didn't have George Lucas money, where they could just fucking rebuild it, um, instead of shopping his script around in Los Angeles, Far turned to a different medium, comic books. And... That proved to be successful, so soon after that, he sold the script to Dark Horse as a comic, where he was paired up with Canadian artist Howard Cobb to handle the illustrations. Dark Horse first published the comic book version of Virus in December 1992, and the execs at the company apparently thought very highly of the series because after the original comic book series was released, they published it as a trade paperback not once but twice before the property was ever optioned for a movie. Okay, that's pretty good. Before I pass this off to you, just a little history lesson that I wanted to share. What is Dark Horse Comics, some of you may be asking. And, well... We're here to help you so that you don't get yelled at by your local nerd at the next Comic-Con, which will at some point happen in the year 2030, because all at this point, we're never fucking
0: leaving. Jared, I'm offended about that, because you know that this was the first year I got tickets to Comic-Con since 2007. Oh, no. And I couldn't fucking go. Oh, no, I forgot about that. put this in here as a fucking stab right in my heart. I'm so sorry I forgot about that. I'm, not, I'm son not, of a bitch. I'm not
1: joking when I say this. I totally forgot.
0: <laughs> no! That's awful. So, anyway. It's okay.
1: Uh, it's, it's, I guess
0: I'll just die Oh god I I, I,
1: I, Please don't So you've If you're just a general Consumer of media You don't really follow comic books You don't follow that stuff You've probably heard of Marvel You've probably heard of DC But then there's Dark Horse So Dark Horse was a comic book company That was founded in 1986 In Oregon by Mike Richardson They've published a lot of Darker stories over the years Including some characters You might recognize Hellboy Sin City The American, and even The Mask. Upon research, and I didn't know this, yes, that mask, the one with Jim Carrey, that was a comic book first. So, they've even published highly successful adaptations of licensed content like Alien, Conan, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and before they were acquired by Disney, Star Wars. Um, Their most recent and successful franchise is Gerard Way's The Umbrella Academy and The True Lives of the Fabulous Killjoys, which was based off of characters created for the fourth My Chemical Romance album. And since its release, The Umbrella Academy has since become a hit Netflix television show. Excuse me, a hit Netflix television show. But with all this... Dark Horse has an amazing reputation for the material that they put out. It's very safe to say that. And it makes a lot of sense that a company like Dark Horse would latch onto a series like this. It's dark. It's got a sci-fi edge to it. It's kind of weird. It's a really, it's a great fit.
0: And I tried to read it before we did this episode. Oh. But my local comic book store closed due to COVID. So. Like
1: permanently or? Permanently
0: closed. God damn it. Yep. So rest in peace. I, I did not read it. I read a few panels here and there just to get a, an idea for it. It's pretty cool. But the comic book was not the only inspiration for the movie. Uh, it was also inspired by a pretty long-standing literary tradition, which is something called the ghost ship. Hmm. One of horror and science fiction's most common plots during the 19th and early 20th century was the ghost ship. Not in the literal sense of a ship being a ghost, because that would be ridiculous, uh, but Of ships being found abandoned or with all the crew members dead for unknown reasons on the high seas. And if you remember my little plot description, that might sound familiar to Mm you. Because it is. These plots were all inspired by the real-life discovery of a ship called the Mary Celeste in 1872. The Mary Celeste was an American merchant brigantine, which is a two-masted sailing vessel, for those of you who don't know anything about boats. Like me. And it was discovered adrift and deserted in the Atlantic Ocean off the Azores Islands on December 4th, 1872. Uh, It was found by a Canadian brigantine. What's that mean again, Jared? A two-masted sailing vessel. Good, you're listening. I am. That, That boat was called the de Gracia, De-gratia? De I don't know how you say it. It's like a Latin Canadian thing. It's like de-gratia, eh? Anyway, this fucking <laughs> Canadian boat found her in like this disheveled but still seaworthy condition under partial sail and with her lifeboat missing. And the last entry in the log of the boat was dated 10 days before that. So, the boat had left New York City for Genoa on November 7th and was still amply provisioned when they found it. So, That means it still had all the shit like food and water and all that fun stuff on there. Yeah. The cargo of denatured alcohol was intact, and the captain's and crew's personal belongings were undisturbed. But none of those who had been on board were ever heard from again.
1: Do you see any ghosts? No? This spooky old ship looks
0: deserted to me.
1: Well, if I know Shag and Scoob, they're already
0: aboard. Come on, let's find them. Yeah, and maybe we can find some clues as well. Just like most unsolved mysteries, uh, plenty of people seem to have some solid but wild ideas about what happened to the crew of the Mary Celeste. Some people claim that the crew abandoned ship due to some unusual side effects from the alcohol fumes that were coming off the cargo. So basically, they smelled these alcohol fumes and they went fucking ballistic and they bailed. Others blame the disappearance on some kind of natural phenomenon, like a submarine earthquake or a waterspout, spout, which doesn't seem super viable to me. Uh, and then you've got people who think the ship was attacked by a giant squid or that there was some sort of paranormal intervention involved with the disappearance. So that's the least likely, but also my favorite category. <laughs> the actual facts of the case are not as mysterious as some of these conspiracies make them out to be. Uh, And while it seems pretty clear that there was some kind of foul play going on, court officers in Gibraltar attributed the incident to one of three likely possibilities. One of them was mutiny by the crew. The other was piracy from the crew of that Canadian ship or other ships. And the third was a conspiracy to carry out insurance or salvage fraud. So basically, they bailed on the boat with the plan to come back to it later and then make money by by salvaging it, which is exactly what the crew in virus wants to do to the Volkov. So there you go. Interesting. Yeah. So, out of fairness, there was no convincing evidence to support any of these theories. And that's one reason why the story of the Mary Celeste dominated pop culture in the late 1800s and early 1900s. A bunch of prominent authors at the time wrote stories that speculated about the reasons behind the ship or ships that were obviously based on that ship being found abandoned. For example, Arthur Conan Doyle kind of came up with this really weird, racially motivated madman who raided the ship and got rid of people. And that's in a story called J. Habakkuk Jeffson's Statement, which is really just a clunky name for a story. Yeah, it really is. Uh, There's also a story called A Fire in the Galley Stove by William Outerson, which proposed a giant octopus as the culprit for the ship's disappearance. We had Paul Sloan's 1933 film Terror Aboard, And that basically has people discover the ship and find everybody dead, but it doesn't explain why they died. Uh, There's another horror film from 1935 called Mystery of the Mary Celeste. And that said that it was a vengeful crewman who caused all the ruckus. And what do you think was the first thing that came to mind when UFO theorists started thinking about mysterious disappearances of boats?
1: The Bermuda Triangle.
0: Well... Probably, but after that was the Mary (laughs) Celeste, Jared. Try to play along, okay? Anyway, this trend of the whole ghost ship thing fell off for a little bit in pop culture, mainly because people didn't really use ships very much anymore. Uh, And so there was really no intrigue to the stories. But there's still plenty of examples of the genre in more recent films from the late 90s and even the 2000s. Uh, Some of those include Deep Rising from 1998, Uh, Ghost Ship from 2002. Go figure that a movie called Ghost Ship would be based on this ghost ship idea. There's a movie called Adrift that came out in 2018, which is about a boat that is adrift. So there you go. And then my favorite one on this list is Prometheus because it kind of bends the genre a little bit. But they do find an abandoned ship. It's not a sailing ship. It's a spaceship. But they find it. And they are literal well, they're projections, but they're also ghosts on it. So that movie counts. goddammit.
1: it. Yep, I agree. Um, and in addition to the comic series and the ghost ship origin, they're also a hodgepodge of other influences, accidental or otherwise. So Virus is an unwieldy mixture of several box office hits, including Alien which, aside from the obvious Foster-Ripley parallel, there are some pretty clear connections from the crew being trapped aboard a ship with some kind of alien menace terrorizing them, as we kind of just talked about with Prometheus. But anyway, um, it was also inspired by The Thing, in which a parasitic extraterrestrial life form that assimilates then imitates other organisms. It is a great movie if you've never seen it. Um, Most zombie movies, you know, the whole reanimated corpse thing, starting back with Night of the Living Dead. uh, The Terminator... Evil human like robots, obviously, and a film called Hardware, in which the head of a cyborg reactivates, rebuilds itself, and goes on a violent rampage in a space marine's girlfriend's apartment. I need to see this movie.
0: That's oddly specific.
1: <laughs> and of all these movies, Virus probably draws the most comparisons to Steven Summers' movie Deep Rising. You'll know Steven Summers because he directed The Mummy. Um, And Deep Rising came out the year before, in 1998. So, here's the IMDb plot description for Deep Rising, just as a quick rundown. A group of heavily armed hijackers board a luxury ocean liner in the South Pacific Ocean to loot it, only to do battle with a series of large-sized, tentacled, man-eating sea creatures who had already invaded the ship. Cool. Obviously, it's not exactly the same, but it's pretty fucking close. And plus the fact that they came out so close to one another didn't really help matters when it came to all the comparisons.
0: Oh yeah, because everybody saw Virus and they go, Hey, ha, ha, that looks just like Deep Rising.
1: So let's talk about the pitch in the cell.
0: Like Jared said earlier, Farr thought that it would have been impossible to make Virus as a movie in 1992. But things had changed a little bit in the late 90s. Given the success of the comic book over the last few years... In the advances in technology that had been made in film since 1992, Far and the Suits over at Dark Horse finally felt that it was time for Virus to become what it had always wanted to be, a big old Hollywood blockbuster. And, and that's where Mutual Film Company comes into play. All right, so Mutual Film Company is an American film production company based in, you guessed it, Hollywood, California. Founded by financer Gary Levinson in nineteen eighty nine as Classico Entertainment. So they made pasta sauce and movies. The company eventually merged with the Mark Gordon Company in nineteen ninety-five to form Cloud9 Entertainment.
1: I was gonna say that Classico almost sounded like an old retro video gaming company. You know what? Maybe it does all three. Maybe they do they finance films, they make pasta sauce, and they make like like rip-off Sega Dreamcast games.
0: No, it makes sense. That's where we—that's where we got Super Mario, the Italian job, and your favorite pasta sauce. <laughs> exactly. Anyway. Oh boy, Italian people—you're—you're you're multi-dimensional human beings. You're not just known for pasta and and Mario. Anyway, the company merged with the Mark Warden Company, like I said. They formed Cloud Nine Entertainment, and then a year and a half later, Cloud Nine was renamed Mutual Film Company. And that name was meant to reflect the joint venture between the producers, Mark Gordon and Gary Levinson, as well as the profits the company would share with its international investors from the UK, Germany, Japan, and France. Now, this is some nerdy film industry shit, but I think it's interesting, so we're going to talk about it, Damn dammit. Sure, I'm sure you think it's interesting as well. I Jared. do, the, I the do. Listeners might be like, Jesus Christ, why are they talking about this shit? Anyway. <laughs> Shortly after the merger between Gordon and Levinson, the newly formed company created an international sales division and finalized a multi-year equity partnership with four companies. The BBC in the United Kingdom, Telemunchen in Germany, uh, Toho Tau Marubeni in Japan, and uh, UGCPH in France, which in French is of course pronounced UGCPH. I think that's actually pretty close. Together, <laughs> these four companies agreed to finance 60% of the budget for each movie that Mutual Film Company developed. So that's 15% each. So Mutual's only paying 40% for its own films. It's a pretty good deal. Yeah. And in exchange for that 60% of the budget, these companies would get distribution rights in their respective territories and equity stakes in the films on a worldwide basis. So basically, you help us pay to make this, you get the rights to release it in your own country.
1: Yeah, so this deal made it possible for Mutual Film Company to start playing with the big boys in Hollywood, and they quickly started to make a name for themselves because of this. Soon, the financier was signed on to co-produce and finance several feature films for the industry's biggest studios, and one of those studios was Universal Pictures, a studio that we've brought up many times and will bring up many more times in this entire show, Um, one of the biggest players in the entire year.
0: Um, Maybe but, that's why they chose a name like Universal <laughs> instead of like microscopic pictures. Nah,
1: it's a that's a... Uh,
0: Nucleus pictures. Yeah. Ant pictures. <laughs> aphid pictures. Atom pictures. Dust particle pictures. Ooh, I like atom pictures. Atom
1: pictures sounds cool. Sometime in the mid-90s, Mutual set up a five-movie co-financing and domestic distribution arrangement with Universal. And one of those five movies was Virus. And the other movies on that list, by the way, just so you know, were The Jackal, Black Dog, and Primary Colors.
0: But wait, Jared, that's only four movies. Well, look at you, counting to four. Um, You're right. That's an improvement from last
1: week. (laughs) You're right. But there's a good reason, and that's because Mutual never actually made a fifth movie with Universal, but much more on that later. So, we've got the script. We've got the cash, and we've got the studio. Now we've just got to find a director. And that's where John Bruno comes into the picture for this. Leading up to Virus, John Bruno was not known as a director by any stretch of the imagination. He directed the soft landing sequence in the 1981 cartoon epic Heavy Metal, as well Which, as... if
0: you haven't seen, you have to watch right now.
1: Okay. As well as a Terminator 3D film attraction at Universal Studios that I've been on and it's fucking awesome. It's sad that it doesn't exist here anymore. It was called T2 3D Battle Across Time and that came out in 1996.
0: The future is coming. Coming after you. Ruthlessly. Relentlessly. Engulfing you overwhelming you until it ultimately terminates you and only one thing can save you i said i'd be back terminator 2 3d battle across time an incredible new way to ride the movies only at universal studios in orlando florida hasta la vista baby
1: but literally that's it just those two things and they weren't even technically short films um a sequence and a theme park attraction and his directing career didn't exactly take off after virus either since then he's only added two more directing credits to his resume um a couple of episodes of star trek voyager one in 99 and one in 2000 and deep sea challenge a 2014 3d documentary chronicling filmmaker james cameron's diving expeditions in his deep sea challenger submersible
0: music on his name is James Cameron, the bravest pioneer. No budget too steep, no sea too deep. Who's that? It's him, James Cameron. Systems are normal. You guys hearing the song OK up there? James Cameron, explorer of the sea. Yes, James, we hear the song. Descending to 1,000 feet. I don't see the bar yet. Looks like it must have sunk pretty low. With a dying thirst to be the first. Could it be? That's yeah, him, James Cameron.
1: That might seem pretty random, but it'll make more sense in a minute.
0: So, given the fact that John Bruno was decidedly not a big-time Hollywood director, how in the hell did he end up directing a big-time Hollywood movie? While Bruno may not have been a well-known director, he was a prolific visual effects artist with a fuck ton of impressive credits. And when I say impressive credits, I mean it. Here's a little list of some of the movies on his resume. Poltergeist. Ghostbusters. Fright Night. Poltergeist 2, The Other Side, The Abyss, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, Batman Returns, True Lies, and Titanic. So, that's pretty good. That's
1: pretty damn impressive.
0: There was one interview for Virus where William Baldwin, who plays Steve Baker in the movie, said, Well, I think John was nominated for several hundred thousand Academy Awards for special effects. This is his strength, obviously. (laughs) And in reality, it was more like six nominations for Best Visual Effects. Uh, But one of those for The Abyss was a win. And he'd also been nominated for several other awards, including two BAFTAs. And he'd won a Saturn Award for Best Special Effects for the movie True Lies. So yeah, he was pretty good at special effects. And that's important because remember, the reason Farrer didn't make this movie back in 1992 was that he didn't feel like Hollywood could produce the right special effects to bring his story to life now they could, and if anybody was going to do it, John Bruno was the man for the job. But, in order to get him, they had to steal him away from another project, which I already mentioned a second ago. Titanic. In 1997, around the time that virus was in its early stages of development, Bruno was about to start work on the visual effects for Titanic. See, Bruno was a longtime mentee, not manatee, mentee. Those are different (laughs) things. I didn't know that before, and I signed up for a tutoring job, and they were like, your mentees are going to show up. And I got so excited, and I brought cabbage for them, but they were people, and they didn't want the cabbage, and it was very sad. Anyway, Bruno was a longtime mentee of James Cameron, and he'd worked with him on The Abyss, for which he had won an Academy Award, of course, and Terminator Dose. He'd also traveled with James Cameron aboard the academic Kildish which was a Russian scientific research vessel, sound familiar, mm-hmm. that James Cameron used on an expedition of the Titanic while preparing to make the film. So, you got this special effects expert named John Bruno, who has also spent a shitload of time on a Russian research vessel. Seems like a pretty good fit, right? And... By the way, that weird random directing credit for Deep Sea Challenge kind of makes sense now, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, There's another little fun fact to bring in here too, which is that one of the producers on Virus was Gail Ann Hurd, who at the time was married to Jim Cameron. Yep. So there you go. Uh, Anyway, Bruno's getting ready to dive headfirst into the whole Titanic thing when he receives an offer to direct his first feature film and it's called Virus. And he does what any aspiring Hollywood professional would do, He accepts. So, Jared, now we have our captain, John Bruno. We just got to find our crew. Yes,
1: we do. So let's go and talk about our crew. And first off on this list is none other than a fucking awesome actress named Jamie Lee Curtis, who plays Kit Foster. And most people know her. And I know Andrew made the the activity yogurt yogurt lady. lady a little while ago.
0: But Jamie Lee Curtis has the most regular bowels in Hollywood, and you can take that from me.
1: Jamie Lee Curtis was in motherfucking Halloween as Laurie Strode. She was in 1, 2, and then Halloween H20 20 years later, and she's fucking awesome in these movies. Uh, she's also labeled herself as somewhat of a scream queen, which is uh, a general term used for female protagonists in Horror films. So she appeared after Halloween in The Fog, Prom Night, and Terror Train, among some other films. Um, but those were some of her most prominent. She was also in A Fish Called Wanda, True Lies, Trading Places, My Girl, and many, many other films. Um, after 1999, she was in Halloween Resurrection, uh, Disney's Freaky Friday. She was recently in Knives Out, and she's also had some memorable TV appearances on shows like New Girl, NCIS, and uh ironically scream queens which she was hysterical in and of course she returned as laurie strode in the recent halloween reboot and its upcoming sequels which we will now have to wait another year for but anyway um, it's okay jared because we're not gonna get a real halloween this year either there's very few casting stories for this movie but there's one very memorable story from jamie lee curtis and that is that she hated this film.
0: She really doesn't she like it. She
1: really at all. hates this film. So she's on record as saying this is quote the worst movie ever made. And in an interview with IGN.com, um, Jamie Lee Curtis said the following about Virus. This interview was back in 2003. Quote, Rob Reiner for his 40th birthday had a bad show business party where everybody brought show business clips. Rob's was him playing a hippie on Gomer Pyle USMC in 1964, singing "Blowin' in the Wind. Virus is so bad that it's shocking. That would be the all-time piece of shit. It's just <laughs> dreadful. That's the only good reason to be in bad movies. That's Then when your friends have bad movies, you can say, ah, I've got the best one. I'm bringing virus. Um,
0: An all-time piece of shit.
1: So, those comments were made in 2003, and you may think that she may have changed her opinion as the years have gone by. Sometimes people will look at stuff and they'll go, yeah, okay, it wasn't that terrible. It just looked very dated and crappy for the time, but it's got kind of a following. It's, It's okay. No, you're wrong. So, back in 2018, Curtis was speaking at CinemaCon about the revival of Halloween that we talked about earlier, and she stated the following when asked something about... The making of Halloween. And she said, quote, It is still terrifying in its simplicity. Jason Blum has enthusiasm like a virus and a good virus, not like the piece of shit virus I made in the (laughs) nineties.
0: And you know what? She knows a thing or two about making shit because of all that fucking probiotic yogurt that she eats.
1: I can't believe you just said that, but I also can. (laughs) <laughs> um, she added that she lobbied Hard to have the director fired And replaced by Steve Miner With whom she had made Halloween H2O 20 years later in 1998 However, he wasn't available As he was working on Another staple of the 90s Dawson's Creek
0: Alright, up next We have Billy Baldwin As Steve Baker. And his name's William Baldwin, but I refuse to call him that. He'll always be Billy Baldwin to me. Uh, Before Virus, Billy Baldwin was in Born on the Fourth of July, Flatliners, Backdraft, and Sliver. And after, he was in a a few more movies, including The Squid and the Whale, which is an excellent little indie ish kind of movie. Forgetting Sarah Marshall, he was the voice of Batman in Justice League Crisis on Two Earths and a variety of other film and television shows. And most recently, he has starred as David Riker on the Purge TV series on USA Network and as John West in Netflix's Northern Rescue. And And USA Network is USA Network, (laughs) just in case you weren't clear on that.
1: Uh, Next up, we have another pretty legendary actor, Donald Sutherland, who plays Captain Robert Everton in the film.
0: He also plays uh, Kiefer Sutherland's dad in real life.
1: He does. Um, so before Virus, he was in the dir- he was in a lot of great films before Virus. So he was in The Dirty Dozen, Mash, National Lampoon's Animal House, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh, as I referenced on the Sixth Sense episode, he was in Ordinary People, the most fucking depressing movie of all time, uh, JFK, Outbreak, and A Time to Kill. After. Virus, he was in The Italian Job, Cold Mountain. Which was,
0: of course, made by Progresso Pictures.
1: (laughs) Uh, No, Classico Pictures.
0: Classico (laughs) Pictures, I apologize.
1: Uh, He was in The Italian Job, Cold Mountain, Pride and Prejudice, and most notably, he played President Snow in the Hunger Games franchise. He actually plays a really great villain in those movies. So, um, Who do
0: we got up next? We have Joanna Pacula as Nadia. Before this movie, she first gained attention for her work as a model in Vogue. And not in the Instagram, and Twitter version of Vogue, where you Photoshop it on there yourself. She was really in there, okay? And she had a breakthrough performance after that in 1983 for a film called Gorky Park, which is just a horrible <laughs> name for a film. But hey, she got a Golden Globe nomination for it, so there you go. Yeah. She's also appeared in a bunch of stuff since 1980, including the Western epic tombstone which is one of my favorite it is a fucking
1: awesome movie
0: (laughs) just just the best val kilmer in just peak form she also appeared in two other movies in 1999 so we're gonna get to talk about her a couple more times one of those was the art of murder which was a made for tv canadian movie uh so it was very polite and error in judgment after virus she was in a bunch of other film and tv roles but really nothing very specific that you'd recognize so we're not going to mention any of them
1: um next up we have marshall bell who played jw woods jr um before so his career is interesting so a lot of his roles are made up of bit parts but specifically where he appeared uh, particularly like pre-1999 is very interesting so he has quite an extensive filmography he appeared in A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, Stand By Me, Twins, Total Recall, Starship Troopers, Tucker, The Man in His Dream, and Natural wait, Born wait, Killers. Wait, Tucker,
0: The Man in His Dream? <laughs> that was going to
1: be the name of my biography when I finally made it. You could, you could still do it. It could, be, it could be a little nod to the movie. Ah, I'll think of something else. <laughs> um, we'll also be seeing him again in 1999 for films A Slipping Down Life and Black and White. After 1999, he's continued to have an extensive filmography, appearing in films like The Rum Diary, The Bling Ring, and Rules Don't Apply, among many others. And I think there's a few television roles that were thrown in here and there.
0: Up next, we have Sherman Augustus, who plays Richie, whose name you hear a lot in this movie. Because one of the characters says it at the end of every fucking sentence. But anyway, Sherman Augustus, before he was in Virus, he was a football star. That's right. He played college football at Northwestern College in St. Paul, Minnesota. And then he went on to play professionally for the San Diego Chargers and the Minnesota Vikings. So, there you go. And then prior to 1999, he appeared in a few movies for example. What's love got to do with it? Colors and Rumple Steelskin. He was also in some TV shows like Murder She Wrote, The Nanny, Chicago Hope, and The Sentinel. After Virus, he was in a few more movies and TV shows, among them The Mexican, Zigzag, The Neighborhood, The Young and the Restless, CSI, NCIS, and Into the Badlands. Next up
1: we have uh one of the coolest parts of this movie was Cliff Curtis as Hiko. And before 1999, I think it's safe to say with Cliff Curtis that he has an amazing run of films both before and after 99. So before this movie, he was in uh, Jane Campion's The Piano, Deep Rising, and Six Days, Seven Nights. And it's kind of funny that he's in Deep Rising because he kind of did Two similar films back-to-back. So we'll also be seeing him again in 1999 for Three Kings, Bringing Out the Dead, and The Insider. Um, So some pretty films that are considered to be pretty great. And since then, he's gone on to be in a great deal of film and television shows, uh, including in film, Blow, Training Day, The Majestic, Whale Rider, Live Free or Die Hard, 10,000 BC, The Meg, Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw, Dr. Sleep, and he is set to appear in two of the upcoming Avatar sequels, which will most likely be released 100 years from now. He has also appeared as Travis Manawa recently in Fear the Walking Dead on AMC. So there you go.
0: I, I think Cliff Curtis is a cool story. Everybody kind of likes to give Taika Waititi credit for being like the, the Maori guy in Hollywood. You know what I mean? But like Cliff Curtis was, was representing for a long time before that. So I think it's kind of cool. And I think, and it like, it plays a little bit of a role in the movie. Yeah. I
1: was really impressed by how like he was so like authentically representing that culture. I thought it, I thought it was a really cool, diverse aspect rather than just kind of trying to whitewash everything. So
0: Yeah. yeah. And they don't make like a big deal out of it. I was like, for, for this movie being as weird and shitty as it was, I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I'm like, wow. Yeah. I liked okay. it. He was
1: a cool character in this movie. Um, Good for you. Yeah. But we got one more.
0: Uh, Yep. Yeah. Up next, we have, I honestly, I think one of my favorite characters in this movie, which is Julio Oscar Machoso as Squeaky. Yes. <laughs> uh, he's he's great. Yes. Uh, Before this, he appeared on television shows like Miami Vice and Seinfeld. As well as in movies like Police Academy 5, Assignment Miami Beach, Internal Affairs, Bad Boys, and Vegas Vacation. And we're going to get to see him two more times in 1999 for Molly and Blue Streak. Uh, After Virus, he was in Jurassic Park 3, Once Upon a Time in Mexico, Phone Booth, Assassination Tango, Lords of Dogtown, excellent skateboarding movie, The Legend of Zorro, Little Miss Sunshine, Grindhouse, The Planet Terror Segment, Machete Kills, and many others. So he's got a pretty fucking cool resume here. Yeah. unfortunately though that resume ends in 2017 because he passed away of a heart attack at the age of 62 so rest easy julio thanks for all the good movies buddy yeah
1: he left behind some really cool shit in his filmography so um he definitely left behind something cool now that we've got our crew let's actually start filming this damn thing and let's talk about filming Uh, Principal photography began for Virus on January 30th, 1997, and it wrapped on June 7th, 1997. And yes, you heard that right. Virus was filmed in 1997, two years before it hit theaters for the first time in January 1999.
0: Wow. So if that's... What's with the delay, my friend?
1: So if that sounds a little unusual to you, it's because it absolutely is. But this wasn't an exercise in extreme preparation, unfortunately so what was it in fact virus was originally supposed to be released in the summer of 1998 which makes sense right you think
0: it does yeah being filmed in 1997 that makes
1: perfect sense. so you've got the perfect recipe with this for a big summer blockbuster you have a cool premise you have a big studio horror sci-fi flick a sizable budget killer special effects and a top tier cast so to answer your question of what happened well after virus completed production in the middle of 97 The studio originally scheduled it for release on August 14th, 1998, smack dab in the middle of summer blockbuster season. And that seemed like a really great plan. Until a company called Dimension Films announced that a little horror movie called Halloween H20 20 Years Later would be coming out on August 5th, just one week earlier.
0: This summer... Terror won't be taking a vacation. Halloween H2O. It's Halloween. I guess everyone is entitled to one good scare. I've had my share. It's a good thing they put the 20 years later after the colon. Because otherwise I would have been like, Halloween water. What the fuck is this?
1: (laughs) When I first saw the thing for that as a kid, I was like, H2O. That's water. Oh, does it take place in like a submarine? Like my mind automatically jumped to like the Friday the 13th thing, where it's right, like right, Jason right. takes New York, or uh, Jason Under, or like whatever fucking sequel they have for that it's like
0: It's like Jason, but he's wearing a red beanie and like a powder blue shirt, and he's down there with Bill Murray, and they're doing like the Steve Zizou The Life thing.
1: Aquatic with Michael Myers.
0: The Death Aquatic. The Death Aquatic, bro, nice. All right, trademark nineteen ninety nine podcast. There we
1: go. It'll soon be on a double feature with Tusk, uh, films that started because of podcasts. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, uh, so- we got to make the sequel Husk, which is just a man who turns another man into some corn.
1: <laughs> and you know he's probably written it. And I say that completely. <laughs> and I say that completely with love for Kevin Smith. I love the fact that he does shit like that. It's great. Um, so anyway. Halloween H2O is coming out. This posed a couple of challenges for Universal. One, the Halloween franchise had been one of the most popular franchises in horror since the original movie came out in 1978. Both movies would have appealed to the same audience, and understandably, Universal didn't want their obscure comic book movie to have to compete with Michael Myers. Not Mike Myers, Michael Myers, who would also- I was going
0: to say, we haven't made a connection to last week yet. That seems like our only opportunity. So-
1: And the second reason is that Jamie Lee Curtis starred in both films. So, rather than taking their chances up against the Halloween sequel or forcing Jamie Lee Curtis to compete against herself at the box office, Universal decided to move Virus to October 1998. Which might... Which makes sense, because it's kind of a horror movie. You're releasing it in October. Might be okay. I was
0: going to say, that seems like that would have made more sense for Halloween, because it's in October, which is when Halloween is. Yeah, But I think... And this is interesting because I think Halloween was like, we're actually a little bit nervous about this virus movie. And so we're going to get in front of things and we're going to release Halloween the week before virus. That's the only logical reason I can think of to release it in August in the first place. Because I I don't know how many Halloween movies they made, but three quarters of them at least came out in October.
1: They've made, um, hold on. Eight with the original series, two Rob Zombie remakes, and then they made the new one, which is going to have three films. So at the time, they would have made seven already.
0: Right. Okay. So there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 total, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> by the t- By the time the Halloween s- sequels that are planned come out, there will be 13 total Halloween movies. And of that 13, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 were released in October. Yeah. So it is unusual for Halloween to come out in a month that is not October. Uh, The only other one that came out in August, by the way, was Halloween and Halloween 2, the Rob Zombie one.
1: Yes. Yeah. He definitely pushed that. I mean, and if you've seen those movies, they're fucking dark. It makes sense they're out in October.
0: But anyway. And then Curse of Michael Myers came out in September of 1995 this is a huge tangent but all all of this is really just to say i think that that the virus people had the halloween people a little bit spooked yeah and that's why they pushed up that release.
1: so they pushed it to october of 98 and then unfortunately after they decided to delay this movie the general consensus among critics and audiences was basically well If they didn't think it could compete with Halloween, it must be because they think it's bad. When in reality, it was probably the reverse, that they didn't know what was going to happen. They were guaranteed that Halloween would do well, but they didn't know if something else was going to dethrone it. And this only caused the buzz around the movie to fall even further. So the studio eventually decided to delay the release of Virus once again, this time to January of 1999. And... This is important to note because January is typically considered a dumping ground for releases that have lower expectations. So in many ways, the nail was driven into this movie's coffin before it was ever released, which is a bit unfortunate.
0: Yeah, totally. It, I, I mean, it was not set up for success. Yeah. Right. Um, but all that stuff was kind of a detour from talking about filming, which is what we said we were going to do in this part of the show. So I'm going to I'm going to get to that. Not that what you just shared wasn't fantastic, Jared. Excellent job. You Um, too. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, But yes, filming took place in two primary locations. And they might not be the locations that you're expecting. One of them was Wilmington, North Carolina. And the other was Newport News, Virginia. Definitely wouldn't expect that. No, ne- neither of those are, are super popular filming locations, at least based on my experience so far. And particularly with um, the price
1: tag on this film of $75 million, I wouldn't expect that they would need to like go to Wilmington, North Carolina, or Virginia, because they have the money and the backing for it. Usually people go to those locations because they don't have the money, and it's like, I don't know, just seems interesting.
0: There's a pretty good reason for it, and we'll get to it in just a minute, but... As far as, like, locations go, that's pretty much all we get for this movie. There's not a lot of information out there. Like, if you go on IMDb, it's like North Carolina and Virginia. You want to know more? Look on page four at Google. So, <laughs> not very much stuff to find. All right, so, going to move on. Uh, but one thing that's pretty cool about this movie is that, like, 99.9% of it takes place on a boat. Other than the little scene in the space station, there's a little tiny scene in a helicopter that's about it everything else is on one boat or another boat right and about 99.9 percent of the movie was filmed on an actual honest to god real life ship so that's pretty cool nice as i said in my rundown the bulk of the movie takes place on a russian research vessel called the volkov which is a high-tech ship packed to the gills with state-of-the-art technology designed for communicating with outer space so rather than building a set the filmmakers decided to go full send and use a real ship that was packed to the gills with state-of-the-art technology designed for communicating with outer space. There you go. And so they did. They chose the U.S. Air Force missile-tracking ship called the Hoyt S. Vandenberg. And that makes sense, given the fact that John Bruno had spent a bunch of time aboard a Russian scientific research vessel. So the man knows his boats, I guess, right? Okay, so all of you sea dogs out there, we're going to dive into some really nerdy shit about boats for a second. And you can miss me with your, well, technically it's a ship, not boat, bullshit. Because guess what? I already know, and I don't care. It floats in the water. It's not a duck. It's not a leaf. It's a boat. It's a witch. End of discussion. <laughs> it's not a witch. Also, I know that ships are traditionally referred to as she, but I'm not going to do that. Because A, I think it's a little antiquated, frankly. And B, because I checked the Vandenberg's Twitter bio and I didn't see any preferred pronouns in there. So I'm going to call the boat an it because it's a fucking boat. Get used to it. All right. Okay. Are we cool Um, with these stipulations? I'm cool
1: with that stipulation. I have no issue with that. Cool.
0: Then I'm going to give you a little bit of history about the Vandenberg. All right? All right. The ship was built as a troop transport during World War II, which comes up a lot on this podcast for some reason. It was originally called the USS General Harry Taylor when it was commissioned in May of 1944. The ship was temporarily decommissioned in 1946, but was placed back into service six years later. The U.S. Navy continued to use the ship until September of 1957, when it was once again removed from service. Four long years went by, And then the harry taylor was transferred to the u.s air force and converted to a missile range instrumentation ship at that point the vessel was renamed the general hoyt s vandenberg and recommissioned in july of 1964 where it remained in service until the mid 80s if that was incredibly difficult for you to follow it doesn't really matter anyway (laughs) so don't worry about
1: it it was interesting though so now it comes time to film the movie with the ship And by the time filming started in 1997, the Vandenberg had already been decommissioned for about 10 years and mothballed in the James River Reserve Fleet, which is an anchorage of the National Defense Reserve Fleet located on the James River at Fort Eustis in Virginia. And in case you didn't know, a mothballed ship is basically a ship that is retired from service, but kept in good enough condition that it could be used in an emergency.
0: And another fun fact, Fort Eustace is named after the old man from *Curse Cowardly Dog. I was about to say the same thing. Are you serious? I was totally about to say the same thing. I was the first thing I thought
1: of. I thought of Eustace and Muriel. A mothballed ship is basically a ship that's retired from service, but kept in good enough condition that it could be used in an emergency, like that old lantern that's in your hallway closet, or uh, the VHS tapes that I'm never going to use again, or Sean Connery, or something like
0: that. Um... <laughs> You don't know. I'm retired, but if you need to, you could call me out of service.
1: A ship, you say?
0: A ship? A sailing ship? (laughs) God damn
1: (laughs) it. Because the Vandenberg had basically just been sitting there since the 80s and officially struck from the Naval Registry in 1993, it was covered in rust and in a state of disappear when the film crew decided to repurpose it as the Volkov. Obviously, you've seen the movie, or maybe you haven't, Um, but... Anyway, the ship looks nice and shiny and new in the movie uh, when you first see it, and then obviously all the shit happens, so what happened? Well, as you might imagine, it's pretty expensive to restore an entire 523-foot, 9,950-ton ship. So, the filmmakers didn't restore the entire ship, they pulled a Hollywood trick and they just restored half of it. If you remember okay. from one of I can't remember the specific episode, may have been in American Beauty, but where we talked about houses and how they would only build the front of it, kind of the facade. Um, just yes, what that was you, American Beauty? Yeah, just so what you're going to see in the film. So, they did that for the ship. And Before filming started, one side of it was painted and dressed up and restored, and the other half behind it was pretty much just left in shitty condition.
0: Um, Like me when I take a selfie for the Grams. Hey,
1: Oh, that's sad. Um, In addition, one of the ship's largest satellite dishes was removed and draped over its superstructure. And if you look really closely at it, you'll notice that only one side of the ship's exterior was ever filmed on camera for the movie.
0: It's one of those things that you wouldn't notice, but that if you know to look for it, it's very obvious.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, when I thought back to this as I was reading through the research, it made total sense. I remember seeing, oh yeah, you don't even really see anything. It's all filmed from one angle. You only it, When it's introduced at the beginning, and then when the crew finds it, it's all from the same side. So The
0: closest thing you get to an alternate angle is that aerial shot, and you still don't see the other side of the boat.
1: No, yeah. Um, but the crews use the Vandenberg for more than just the exterior shots. In fact, many of the practical shots were filmed on the ship itself, and much of the interior footage was actually shot on the ship. Now, we said that Jamie Lee Curtis fucking hated this movie, but there was one thing that she did think was really cool, and that was the set pieces for this film. Oh, the sets are incredible. This woman, Mei Ling Cheng, is incredible. And Mei Ling Cheng was the production designer on the movie. She did a really great job designing the sets while keeping them somewhat real, because they don't actually look like sets. And this not only brought a sense of authenticity to this film, but it also allowed the production team to save some money on set building, money that could instead be funneled into special effects. But more on that in just a minute. And this finally brings us to what happened to the ship after the film, the Vandenberg's final resting place. On May 27, 2009, the Vandenberg was sunk outside of Key West, Florida to serve as an artificial reef and for recreational diving. The Russian moniker Volkov was still painted on the ship as it went down. So if you're a recreational diver and you like film trivia, maybe you'll see that or maybe you have if you've already been down there.
0: But the real life Vandenberg was only part of the equation. There was also a smaller model version of the ship used for several shots in the movie. Virus's effects team built a 47-foot long model of the Volkov, but they didn't start from scratch. Instead, they used the hull from a different movie model, the Benthic Explorer Super Tanker from James Cameron's 1989 movie, The Abyss, which we've already brought up a few times on this podcast, right? So, yeah, that's right. Apparently, John Bruno managed to find and buy the old hulls from that model, and then he used them to build out the Volkov for Virus, which is pretty cool and resourceful, but also, like... He worked on the abyss, so he knew it was going to work. For some of the key shots in the movie, they towed this little model Volkov out to sea. And according to what I read, it was off the coast of Long Beach, California. But also there was only one source on the entire internet that I could find that says California was a filming location for this movie. So I don't know whether or not I believe that. But anyway, they towed the boat out into the ocean, whether it's in California or Virginia or who fucking knows where. And... um, one of these shots that they filmed out in the ocean was the scene where that lightning bolt slash alien life form thing strikes the Volkov for the first time. And they took the model out and they did what effects guys refer to as sparks and arcs on the ship, which I just love as a little shorthand. Yeah. And basically they show a video of this in the, in the bonus features. And it just looks like a series of really unimpressive backyard fireworks going off on a 47 foot toy boat. But They, For the final movie, they spliced in those electrical effects in post-production and they blended those with the real-life sparks and the smoke and you end up getting a really cool, realistic-looking effect. So that was one of the things they used this model ship for. Um, In other scenes, like the storm scene, they used the model in a giant custom-built tank instead of out on the open ocean. See, the problem here was Bruno didn't think that it would be possible... To generate a realistic looking storm sequence using special effects at this point in the 90s. And that makes sense, considering how tough of a challenge water was for computer animators back at the time. If you think back to our Toy Story 2 episode, we talked a lot about how Pixar was having trouble making fake water for a bug's life that looked good enough as fake water. So, imagine trying to make real water look good enough for this movie around the same time. There's just not really any way that's going to happen, right? So... Bruno starts looking for other more practical options, and he finds one. Because when he had been working on The Abyss, yet again that movie comes up, he and his team designed a custom wave tank for a storm sequence in that movie, but they never built the tank. And the dimensions were 100 foot by 100 foot, so it's just a big old square full of water with plenty of room for this 47-foot model ship to float around in. And on one side of the tank, there was a 30-foot tall water tower and that could be triggered to dump out ninety-six thousand gallons of water into the tank all at once. Wow! And that release—that's a—that's a lot, right? Yeah. Some engineering went into this, and and that release of ninety-six thousand gallons of water was enough to disturb the water in the tank for about thirty seconds. So it started off with this like eight-foot wave, and that sort of like crashed back into itself and made this kind of chaotic, wave, choppy, storm effect. And those kind of bounced against the ship model in this crisscross pattern, and you end up getting what looks like a pretty convincing typhoon. For science. <laughs> right? It sounds like some Mythbusters-level shit.
1: That's, that's super cool, though. And it's, it's awesome to see how far technology has come in terms of what can be done in tanks with creating artificial storms and things like that and how this is kind of the precursor to that um and of course there's one more boat that we need to talk about in this movie and that is the sea star now if you haven't seen the movie which i'm we're we're sure you haven't um but if you did thanks for sticking around with us the sea star is the name of the little tugboat that our main characters are on before they stumble across the volkov and this little tugboat is put through the ringer in the storm and if you're curious about how they filmed it you're in luck because i'm about to tell you Uh, The entire Seastar was built in a studio indoors on a gimbaled set, which basically allowed the fake boat to move in any direction, essentially replicating the realistic movements of a boat in choppy waters. Of course, you can't have an ocean or storm sequence without water, so they basically just dumped a bunch of water on the set while they were filming. (laughs) It's very, like, combining new tech with just the old fashioned throwing water visual effect on people. So it Right, I it mean works. that's
0: about as basic as it yeah.
1: gets. There's some video of this available on YouTube and it's kind of funny because you can see the camera guys and the other crew members that are all standing around wearing these big ass ponchos while they just throw water on them.
0: And they're just getting blasted. Yeah, so. And you can tell they don't like it.
1: Yeah. It's pretty funny. We've talked about the plot We've talked about the inspiration, the pitch in the cell. Let's dive into what makes this movie really, really tick, and that is the special effects and our production stories.
0: Yeah, so I mean some of that boat stuff we kinda started to dip into special effects just a little bit, but we're we're gonna go balls deep now. Yeah. We've talked about this a lot on the podcast already over the last ten episodes. But the mid to late 90s were this time when most film productions were starting to kind of make that switch to computer graphics, right? Yeah. And while Virus does rely on a certain degree of CGI, pretty effectively, I will add, uh, the movie also has a shit ton of practical effects and model work. So the result is that despite being kind of a shit show of a movie, Virus actually achieves a pretty high level of realism compared to a lot of the other movies produced at the same time because of that combination of practical and CGI. Uh, it, because in 1999, if you only had practical, it almost looked a little bit outdated, right? But if you only had CGI, it you could tell that the technology wasn't quite there yet. So it was kind of this weird middle ground of like, what do I do?
1: CGI, it, it was this weird blend. And it was this weird, I think that's what almost makes some of these films stand out. So much in that maybe the CGI in some of them isn't the best, but it's kind of the first attempts of people doing what they can with CGI work, but then having to still rely on practical effects and that that kind of blending of the two of them. I feel like it hit its stride in the early two thousands, um, before everything became super like just completely digital. But um, it's interesting to watch films like these. Um, because of how they blend those kinds of production together.
0: Absolutely. And not to use like a corny ship metaphor, but like having John Bruno at the helm of this thing (laughs) was the right guy to have. You know what I'm saying? Because he was thinking about all of that stuff. And when it came time to make the movie, he sat down and he started looking at the movie and what he was going to do in terms of special effects to make it look as realistic as possible. And he started by looking at the comic book and thinking... What do I want to see here? And he, he said, quote, I want things in this film that would actually make me sit up at the edge of my seat. And I think he accomplished that, actually. So, good job. But in order to figure out how he was going to do that, he sat down and he storyboarded pretty much the entire film. And those concept drawings that he had on paper ended up turning into models, which then turned into the monsters that we actually see on the screen. Um, John Levengood, who's... This blogger for John's Horror Corner said it best when he said there are basically three tiers of special effects in the movie. And here's a quote from John. The special effects span a broad range, hitting us in three phases, i.e. as we learn more about our monster and its capabilities, but improve notably as the film progresses. At first, we find little robotic spiders and flies clumsily clunking about while dragging extension cords in their wake. Then human victims are overtaken as cyborgs with a now more evil semblance of their conscious selves. They look like chunky macabre T-800s with a dash of Borginess from Star Trek First Contact. (laughs) The final phase of the effects is a CGI enhanced stop motion hulking menace, a giant robot undertaking the Hive Mother mainframe's most destructive or dire tasks.
1: So let's go through these varying levels of effects in order starting with the little guys so for those of you who haven't seen the movie we're gonna let our buddy billy baldwin explain them to you
0: well one of them's like a uh like a crustacean he's kind of got claws like a crab or a lobster the other one that i thought was very interesting was um the big fly they have little tools for hands and they have little needle nose pliers as one hand and it'll have video camera lenses as eyes
1: Uh, so these small robotic creatures in the movie were developed by steve johnson the robotic effects designer at xfx as well as his crews. Each one is fully robotic, controlled by one or more operators using a bunch of levers and shit to move the creature's legs, claws, eyes, etc. as needed. But eventually, the alien being soon decides that these little insects aren't the ultimate life form on this planet, so it soon moves on to bigger and better things. human slash robot cyborgs. So the effects crew worked with the movie's directors and producers to develop an idea for what they wanted these human-slash-robot hybrids to look like. Then their engineers created an initial mock-up prototype out of wooden dowels and foam to work out the points of movement, which they could then begin actually designing machine parts for. Steve Johnson said in an interview, quote, I think this is the first time an honest-to-god robot has ever been built for a film. In the past, what's been done is puppets have basically been built, and this by no stretch of the imagination can be considered a puppet. If someone were to build a robot in real life that's human-like, this is pretty much what they'd end up with.
0: Yeah, it's pretty fucking far from Mr. Hat. Yeah. (laughs) Hello,
1: kids. It's me, Mr. Hat. The robot was made with industrial hydraulic pistons, so it actually has superhuman strength. The cyborg robot's upper body is controlled by a telemetry suit. An operator steps into the suit, and when he moves, those movements are translated to the robot in real time. The operator just has to do what he wants the robot to do, and it happens.
0: Yeah, Jared, I think Ludacris and Shauna said it best when they said, When I move, you move. Yeah, just like that. (laughs) That's how the telemetry suit works. There you go.
1: The legs work in a similar way, but they have a different joint structure than a real human. So instead of strapping a telemetry suit onto someone's legs, the robot's legs are hand-operated. The face is operated using using a remote control to move the jaw, blink the eyes, etc. According to Johnson... It's kind of like conducting an orchestra. You've got to have many people doing something all in conjunction to make it look like one person is doing it.
0: Yeah, and these things are pretty fucking cool. Like, let's let's be honest about that, right? Like, these cyborg-human-hybrid things in the movie look pretty goddamn cool. they do i think that
1: like again this goes back to that i didn't think this was the worst movie ever made partly because i was kind of like thinking uh oh, the cyborgs are gonna come out and it's just gonna look really bad and it's gonna look totally right t- it's
0: gonna look like a guy with tinfoil glued to his face with elmer's glue. yeah
1: it's gonna lo- it doesn't look like it that. doesn't it looks like i was impressed by some of the uh like robotic work in this quite a bit
0: I mean, you might argue that it's too good for the movie. I, I, I would agree with that. I, I, I think it's th- the, the effects are better than the movie itself I, I would agree with that. And probably the best example of that is this last example, which are these larger-than-human-sized characters, and there are two of them, right? There's two big boys. One of them is a seven-foot-tall robot, and the other one is a nine-foot-tall Goliath robot, both of which were made by a company called All Effects. So I'm gonna talk about the seven footer first, and then we'll move on to that big old nine foot guy. Cool. Alright. So for the seven footer, in the movie, there's a there's an alien or whatever the fuck it is. It's 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 an alien, it's lightning, it's it's a quote unquote virus, I don't know. It decides that this human cyborg model isn't working out because the humans on the boat keep killing the fucking cyborgs. Yeah. There's two of them that he makes, and they both get messed up. So He decides, all right, fuck it. I'm going to create these big seven-foot-tall guys that have four arms, four legs. There's, like, muscles strewn across the electronics to give it this, like, gross human feel. And these robots are pretty cool. They were able to move their whole body and their head like real robots, basically. I don't know how to put it any better than that. And according to Cliff Curtis, who played Hiko...
1: It was just huge. It was unbelievably big. There was one particular scene where there was just a door framing it and it swine in behind the, the door and you couldn't see any of the puppeteers or anything and it was scary
0: but even after all that the alien decides hey guys i'm gonna go big or go home and he makes this really huge self-contained unit which the crew at all effects calls the goliath which is pretty cool sounding the goliath also has four arms and four legs but it measures in at nine feet tall and a whopping four thousand pounds wow. That's pretty that's big. That's nuts. Like, I've been eaten nonstop throughout quarantine, and I haven't hit <laughs> 4,000 yet. So that's huge, right? This thing is very, very impressive to look at. But it's even more impressive when you consider the fact that the team at All Effects only had three and a half months to produce the robot from the initial drawings to the finished product that you see on screen. And if you haven't seen the movie, this, is, this thing is nuts. It's almost like they built Bumblebee in fucking real life. Yeah. Like, th- that's pretty much how crazy it is. It's a
1: really is. impressive scene.
0: So to move this robot around the set during shots, there was a company called Chuck Gaspar Effects, and they built this linear track, and the robot was placed on that track so that it could move back and forth in the sets. And then at the same time, there were operators simulating this walking motion using control systems. And it took two people to control the leg movements, one for the front legs and one for the rear legs. And they had to keep up with the momentum of the robot that was being carried down the track, right? Because the leg movement has to match the speed that it moves down the track or it's not going to look yeah. real. So it's, it's pretty cool how they do it. In one of the little behind-the-scenes videos, you can hear that they're using a metronome like doot doot doot, 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 And they use that metronome and they match the movement of each leg up with a click on that metronome. Chuck Gaspar FX built a linear track for us and the character is run on the linear track, and we simulate the walk with the control systems. One leg, two legs, three legs, four legs. Once again, a puppeteer from the effects company used a telemetry suit to duplicate the movements of the Goliath's upper body, including arms, biceps, shoulders, torso rotations, all that kind of good stuff. In addition, there were individual controllers for hip points, head swivels, and his little hands, And the robot could actually move its fingers individually like a human actor. So they got down to the nitty-gritty fucking details on this thing. And similarly to the smaller humanoid robots, the Goliath had real hydraulics. So it actually had a lot of real power behind it, and it could push through the water, and it could knock things over on the set. This thing was the real deal.
1: See, again, this is what I love about this era, where, yeah, there's certain CGI effects, but you have shit like this where it can push through water, it can knock things over. It's something that you have to actually act against rather than a screen.
0: That's what, it's like how they did BB-8 in Star Wars. That's why they made BB-8 a real thing. So you're not just staring at a cardboard cutout of Thanos' head, with a tennis ball tape. And although I'm
1: not discrediting, there's some people that can do those scenes amazing. Uh, I bring up that same fucking scene from Endgame, but it's like one of the best things that I think has been the best representation of that technology and working with CGI. But it's still awesome to see things exactly like Star Wars where you're acting against something that's physically there.
0: Right. But this thing, like I said, was a very real physical presence and it was actually a little bit dangerous because it was so fucking strong so the effects team made like a little rod puppet version that was basically like a glorified muppet that they could use in the close-up scenes with the actors so they could make sure that nobody got crushed by this giant superhuman robot that they yeah so The puppet, instead of having all these gears and and hydraulics and all that kind of shit, basically just had like simple servos and there were wooden poles connected to it off screen so that they could like manually move the arms around without enough speed to like fling Jamie Lee Curtis into next week. (laughs) So this whole thing took like 29 puppeteers for this and like the littler guys we talked about earlier. But that's a lot of people with puppets.
1: Yeah, it, it really... Like,
0: I don't know if you've ever seen 29 people with puppets in one place, but 29 people with puppets is a lot of people with puppets. I
1: did once, and I don't want to talk about it. No, I'm kidding. No. Okay, we'll move on.
0: We'll move on. <laughs> it's cool. uh, The creature worked in real time with the actors, like we were talking about, uh, and it allowed them to actually interact with it while they were filming. And ironically, the reason for this was to draw out more convincing performances from the actors... And we all kind of know how that worked out in this movie. But we'll get to it that didn't. a
1: little bit later. <laughs> um, yeah. But as cool as all these custom-built props and practical effects are, the team didn't stop there. The next stop on the Movie Magic Express was CGI. And this is where robot animation supervisor Phil Tippett... <laughs>
0: So this is, I mean, you had to know I was building up to that and yet you just continued to talk over it. So I, I, I blame you.
1: All right. Well, so this is where robot animation supervisor, Phil Tippett of the aptly named Tippett studios comes into the picture. And I have a funny story about Phil Tippett, Andrew.
0: Tell me. Do you know, do you happen
1: to know who that is?
0: I mean, I I thought I did. Well,
1: you're not going to like him after this oh god. you know those backs you hate so much yes. guess who was in charge of the entire digital effects overhaul for star wars special edition
0: oh no it was fi- was it it phil? was phil
1: Tippett.
0: oh you motherfucker <laughs> phil so help me god if i ever find you holy shit okay so we're gonna skip this segment <laughs> And we're just gonna go on to the release. He the was he was
1: part of the he was part of the whole. T- I mean, Phil Tippett has an amazing resume. One of the most impressive things that he did was work on the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. That's like he had a bunch of other shit on his resume, but that, to me at least, is one of the most memorable things.
0: And I think he's... it's unforgivable. <laughs> There's n- nothing he could do in cinema could make up for the dude. Oh
1: my god. So. Because of time constraints, as well as the size and scale of the full-scale props, you can't always accomplish everything you want to with practical effects. And John Bruno wanted this Goliath robot to do a lot more than just walk through the frame, excuse me, walk through the frame and swing its arms around. So Phil Tippett and his character animation supervisor Thomas Shelesny worked with Bruno to figure out exactly what he needed this robot to do.
0: And you're not going to tell me that Thomas Shelesny did some fucked up shit like the do-backs, No, I'm
1: not going to tell you that.
0: Okay, good. <laughs> good. Uh, Thank you. First, God.
1: they looked at Bruno's pre-production drawings and had him shoot background plates based on those drawings. Then, they drilled into the details. And that was a conversation that was like, okay, you want him to smash a pipe? There's a lot of ways to smash a pipe. Does he do it like this, or like this, or like that? Basically, naming off every possible way that the physicality of this could work
0: so right and there's a little video of it and the guys like pretending to smash pipes in a bunch of different <laughs> ways and it's kind of funny it's
1: um so they had the physical robot brought to Tippett studios to measure it create digital paintings based on the physical reference of the actual puppet and get an idea of it so they weren't just making up a cg creature from scratch like george lucas and his crew did with jar jar binks or like he did with the Dubacks just a little bit later so or actually that would be earlier it'd be before this he probably did this in like early 90s anyway um they weren't and they weren't just working off of a scale model or a maquette like they did for Imhotep on the mummy they were actually creating a 3D model of a real life full scale robot and that meant that they had to capture exact measurements from real physical references. Once those models were in place, digital lighting supervisor Julie Newdoll and the rest of the art department painted the texture maps that went on top of the individual pieces of the robot, and considering that there were 500 pieces in Goliath's digital model, that was no small task. There was a lot of work to be done.
0: Yeah, that sounds very much like a painting. I can
1: task. barely finish a paint by numbers and uh so to have to paint in 500 pieces of a digital model <laughs> sounds like a nightmare, but I digress.
0: You cu- you cut yourself off at 4.99 for the <laughs> paint
1: my numbers, huh? Yeah, you got me.
0: Um, from there, and that's why Mona Lisa isn't smiling because Jared stopped at
1: 4.99. From there, the animators worked with a low-res version of the puppet to animate the general movements of the robot. Once those movements were fluid, the technical directors applied higher resolution pieces to this model. And at this point, Shelesny would sit down with the animators and discuss the sequences that they needed to create.
0: Like like we talked about with the mummy, right? When they first started to animate Imhotep, there was parts where like, like his, his bicep was like going through his pectoral muscle and it looked weird and fucked mm-hmm. up, right? So it was the same kind of thing with this, where they wanted to make sure that things were moving in a physically possible way before they went through all the trouble of putting all the detailed shit on there.
1: Yeah, so they had to look at like where Goliath needed to be, when he needed to be there, how fast he needed to move, where he needed to go, things like that. They were looking at like little minute details. And they wanted to capture a confident posture and a very purposeful series of movements that not only matched up with the movements of the real life robot but could also do do more.
0: Yeah, and if you watch the movie like he has a, this robot has a really good on-screen presence. It does. You know what I mean? It's it's not like he's just kind of automatically like marching through the set like you would expect a man made robot to do. Like he's he's walking with a purpose, as my uncle said to me once when I was a child at Disneyland and we were trying to make our fast pass. <laughs> right? Like you can see that he is actually like he's got an attitude and a personality. And I think if they don't have that blend of CGI and practical effects, you don't get that.
1: No. And to make sure that the CGI robot matched up with the real one so that it achieved this effect, they actually created 3D models of the set as well. That enabled them to create these realistic-looking sequences in which the Goliath smashes pipes, doors, and any of these other objects in his path without hurting poor Jamie Lee Curtis.
0: So in addition to taking a robot and trying to make it look like a living thing, they also had to take a living thing and make it look like a robot. And of course, I'm talking about Donald Sutherland. And that might have been confusing to you because if you've seen the movie, he looks like he's really not bringing much life to it at all. But anyway, at one point in the movie, Donald Sutherland's character decides he's going to team up with the evil alien life form in a kind of weird, like vaguely suicidal, yet somehow survival motivated move. It's strange. It's like this weird, like, I have nothing left to live for, but if I want to stay alive, I have to do this. And it's like, dude, just, like, pick a side, man. Like, you know, you're on a boat in a typhoon. If you're done, just fucking walk off the edge. But anyway, he decides he's going to go into this whole robot weird, like, flesh shop? I I don't know what to call it. The littlest flesh shop. That's who. <laughs> you know the littlest pet yes. shop? It's like the littlest flesh yeah. shop. Anyway, that's disgusting. <laughs> My God. But... The moral of the story is the alien turns Donald Sutherland into this kind of badass-looking cyborg. And since it was 1999, this was not a full CGI scenario. We're not talking Grand Moff Tarkin in Rogue One. We're talking, like, guy in a robot suit. So, uh, there's not actually even, like, a single ounce of CGI applied to his character. It's all makeup. And, like last week, when we talked about how it took a long time for Mike Myers to get into the Fat Bastard suit... It took Donald Sutherland six hours in the makeup chair to be transformed into what they call Bio Everton, (laughs) which is basically the cyborg version of Captain Everton. And this was such a pain in the ass that Donald Sutherland was like, all right, guys, we're going to do this one time. And so he insisted that they film all the scenes that required the makeup in one day (laughs) so he wouldn't have to go through it again. And there's some behind-the-scenes footage of him in the makeup chair, and he says, we don't do this makeup this early in the morning because it's better for the filming. It's so that there will be no witnesses. <laughs> and then, of course, the cameraman laughs. Ha, 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 because he's filming it. And he knows that we're all going to get to see it. And there are probably, given the popularity of this movie, dozens of witnesses. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the suit was pretty complicated. It had like this whole front chest piece thing, a back piece, a neck piece. And, like, all these little electronic components that were coming out of the flesh. And even if you don't want to watch this movie, which I don't blame you, just Google it. Like, it's a really cool- It's
1: really impressive. It's
0: really badass. It's really, really fucking cool. And they they do a really good job of it. For 1999, I'm sure it just blew people out of the fucking water when they saw it for the first time. Of course, he delivers a super cheesy line when he comes out in this makeup. And he goes- you don't recognize me and it's like of course we recognize you dude you're one of like four people who's worth a shit in this whole movie (laughs) but of course i would have to break the fourth wall to say something like that so anyway that that covers the the makeup side of the effects for this
1: you don't recognize me what's wrong Dear Captain Foster, you must treat me with respect. Yeah, so there were two other things that uh, we're going to touch on uh, to close out production stories, and that was the music. And it's just one little tidbit about this, but the lyrics of the Russian march that are heard during the end credits, you know, as the helicopter's flying out and everything's, they, they escaped the ship, but no other answers are really given to anything else so the the lyrics that you hear are actually the names of the various cast and crew ne- members pronounced backwards
0: can you pronounce jamie lee curtis backwards
1: sit El, l i'm desh see it okay kind of sound russian but so Russian, (laughs) so Russian was actually kind of a a a weird problem with this movie, and it's kind of it alludes back to something that Andrew had said, which was how there's some subtitles, but only for like one sixteenth of all the Russian dialogue. The rest of it is just left. There's nothing else except for like maybe three lines.
0: Yeah, the first subtitle just says, I hope you speak Russian.
1: So the other challenge that they had for this was making the Russian sound even more Russian. And what do I mean by that? Apparently in the Russian version of this film, all of the Russian dialogue in the opening scene was entirely dubbed into Russian again.
0: Why did they do that? Well, there's a
1: couple of reasons. One was that Joanna Pakula delivered her lines with a very strong accent. Another was that the Russian dialogue in the original cut just isn't very audible, an issue that didn't really matter to American audiences because we wouldn't have known what they were saying anyway because they didn't subtitle it. And finally, the lines were delivered very plainly and without much emotion. Again, not really a problem for Americans who don't know what the Russian is supposed to sound like anyway, but I'm sure there were a few people in the theater that were like like alpha nerds that were super pissed off with that.
0: Well, to be fair, the lines in English were not delivered with much emotion either. Th- that's true. So, it's kind of par for the course. Yeah.
1: So, there really isn't... This is usually the segment where we're talking about. Symbolism, metaphors, and illusions. And, I mean, there really aren't any in this movie.
0: There's maybe... It's not that complicated, you guys. It's really not. There's
1: really two little themes that that were kind of touched on that we related back to some things related to both a previous film we talked about and to the year 1999. The first is that it seems that Agent Smith in the Matrix trilogy wasn't the only non-human entity to classify mankind as a virus. Our energy-based alien life form came to the same conclusion in this film.
0: Yeah, there's a little scene in the movie where they're like talking to it on a computer and the thing is like virus you are virus yeah. that's a good,
1: that's and a good they're impression. like they're like
0: they're like what and he's like fuck off i'm going away
1: pretty now. much and then he
0: like and then he just leaves yeah.
1: and it's also <laughs> it's also quite interesting to look at how this was one of the first films at least of the year to hint at the idea of Y2K which would become a major talking point as the year goes on and this is when i say this it's talking about the idea that humanity's eventual downfall would be related to, to technology taking over and crashing everything. In a weird way, this is at least the way that I looked at it, this film is almost a literal take on the idea of technology killing mankind, while The Matrix takes, yeah, there's physical aspects, but it takes more of a metaphorical approach to explaining that, and more yeah, more of a, an area that. of depth. So.
0: I mean, it's a popular theme for 1999, right? Because technology is it's something that's becoming a lot more accessible to like the common person, right? Like the internet and all that shit in 1999 is something that is like, it's reaching a lot of households. And so this idea of, Oh shit, if that alien entity can impact that boat, it could impact me. Right. So I guess that's kind of the fear of it. Right. And that's, that ties into that whole idea of the matrix too, which is like, it could be happening to anybody. You don't know. Right. And so it it is kind of scary but it's not like your typical horror movie with like spooky ghosts or demons or poltergeists or any of that kind of yeah
1: shit. exactly
0: it's more of like an existential kind of fear yeah in which i think it would probably hit pretty well in in today's time i agree with that i because we're all really really existentially freaked out right now cool.
1: let's talk about the release and reception of this film We already talked about how this film was part of a packaging distribution deal for Mutual Film Company and Universal Studios. But once you've got a film done, you can't just release it right away, particularly if it's a film that isn't guaranteed to be a huge blockbuster. You have to exhibit it, you have to show it at festival screenings, screen it for test audiences, blah, blah, blah. You have to get it ready for exhibition. And at this point, enter MIFED.
0: M-I-F-E-D. See, I thought... I thought that was miffed,
1: because no. <laughs> people
0: were miffed that this movie sucks so goddamn bad.
1: So, at least that's how I'm pr- I'm pronouncing it. So, MyFed was a market film festival in Milan that ran until 2004, and this is where people could bring their films and showcase them to distributors. When Mutual showed up at the festival, they brought a few films with them, among them Virus, Primary Colors, Black Dog, and A Simple Plan. And
0: wait, did somebody say Simple Plan? I'm trying to forget i you but I want it and I need it i you now it's
1: they over- managed to sell out every overseas market for each picture and I know that doesn't make sense with what I just said because we're talking about how badly this movie bombed but this means that every overseas market that the company could promote the films to at this festival ended up buying the film to distribute in their countries. So from a business perspective, that's great.
0: Well, and it does kind of make sense, dude, because if you're like, if you're, I don't, I don't know, if you're a foreign market buying an American movie and you see Jamie Lee Curtis and Donald Sutherland, like that's kind of an obvious sell, yeah. right? Like Universal Pictures, big horror movie not necessarily A-list, but up there actors. Yeah.
1: And so with that being said, each movie that was bought ended up being what's classified as a non-performer for distributors. But more on that later. This usually
0: works. Well, all performance issues, you know, it's not uncommon. It, it might seem a little unusual, but they actually ended up developing action figures for this movie. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of an oddball one to make action figures for, in my opinion. But, hey, I'm not a a marketing mogul for a big movie company, so what do I know? Uh, Not much is the answer. (laughs) In anticipation of the movie, action figures were developed. And unlike Tarzan, they weren't jacking off. And unlike Austin Powers, they weren't saying all kinds of inappropriate shit. They were just normal action figures. And the comic book that the movie was based on also received an updated release with the movie's artwork on the cover. Um, so think of any movie that you've seen in the last several years that's based off of a book. You know, when you go to the store, probably Target. Let's be honest, you're at Target and you see the book with the movie's artwork on the shelf there, and it's got that it's got that art on the cover instead of the original artwork. Yeah, that's what they did here, right? They're like, oh, you you recognize Jamie Lee Curtis from the yogurt commercials? You should read this comic. <laughs> I don't think book.
1: the yogurt commercials were out at that time. And
0: then, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Okay, we've already established we've already established that Jamie Lee Curtis can switch bodies with her daughter. So you think that she can't fuck with the time continuum to release a yogurt comic? Come on, Jared. Anyway, so she's eating yogurt on the cover of this comic book and all the nerds buy it up at their local comic book stores. As for the action figures, they didn't have yogurt-eating action, unfortunately. You couldn't press a button on her back and she took a bite of yogurt. But the toys were pretty cool. They were developed by the company Resaurus, which is like Tyrannosaurus, but again, to help promote the film. Obviously, these action figures weren't marketed towards kids, but towards diehard sci-fi fans that were likely to see the film. So if you're living in your mom's basement and you still have some room left on your (laughs) shelf, maybe you'll put this JLC action figure up there. You know what I'm saying? If you've seen Grandma's Boy, you know what happens with those action figures. So the characters that were available for purchase included Foster, Baker, Richie, Captain Everton, Captain Alexi, Squeaky, not the Penguin from Toy Story (laughs) 2, by the way. That's Wheezy. And the Goliath. Yeah, that's close enough. And the Goliath machine. Which also came with a Nadia figurine. And you had to get the Goliath if you wanted the Nadia. And we know all the creeps living in the basement wanted the Nadia. Wink, wink, wink. So they bought the Goliath. The action figures for Squeaky and the captains were all built with their cyborg features. But given parts so that they could restore their human look. So that's kind of a fun little, little deal there. And Goliath's figure also played sound clips from the film. But nothing as raunchy as that Austin Powers one like we just talked about, right? So, believe it or not, some of these figures are still available from online retailers. So, if you are currently living in your parents' basement and you have exhausted your reading material during the COVID shelter in place, you can get that little uh, Nadia-Goliath combo. And
1: All right, now that Andrew has offended our entire listening base, let's talk about Showtime. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding.
0: Um... No, you're not. It, it, it's probably true, but that's okay. We love you guys. Um, it's like six people. <laughs> so
1: with this, we've got the release date and box office numbers. It's showtime. We have our first January film of the podcast. We mentioned before earlier in the show about January, how it's kind of the dumping ground for films that are considered bad. But despite the fact that the studio had already moved the film's release date around three times already, you'd think that maybe they'd do it once more, that maybe they'd have just a little bit more faith in it now that some time had passed. Unfortunately, no. And the critics didn't even get to see it before it was released. There was already bad buzz generating for this film, as we mentioned earlier, and it led the studio to do something that is almost a surefire indicator that their film was garbage. They didn't screen for the critics.
0: And that is That's never a good, a good sign. sign.
1: Um the film opened on January 15th, 1999, and it didn't do well. Really? So remember how we talked about that massive budget of 75 million dollars?
0: Yes, yes I do.
1: Well, it's going to hurt to hear this because it only grossed 30.7 million total.
0: That's like yeah. Aff, dude.
1: and so domestically the film made 14 million internationally it made about 16.6 million and a break it did better overseas yeah it did better overseas and in its opening weekend it opened at six million dollars landing in ninth place for the entire weekend which was led by another film we'll be talking about pretty soon called varsity blues either way it didn't do well um but do you remember how he also said Mutual only completed four of the five films in their deal with Universal Studios?
0: I do also remember that, too. So Jared. this is
1: because only one of those four movies actually made money, and that was The Jackal. No. Okay. The others, <laughs> like a good Virus, reason. Black Dog, and Primary Colors, all flopped the box office. And according to an investor report from that year from Universal's parent company, Seagram Co., The performances at the box office from both Virus and EdTV, a film we'll be covering later, led to a $97 million loss for Universal Studios that year.
0: That's nothing for them.
1: I mean, in in my opinion, that's nothing compared to what all the studios are losing right now, given this era. But... Additionally, after a string of box office failures that included virus, France's UGC PH pulled out of their agreement with Mutual in two thousand. So things were not looking good. And
0: fucking France, yeah. dude, non committal AF. <laughs> so the French were basically like Après avoir foi, de Il n'y a plus moyen de vous donner de l'argent.
1: And what does that translate to?
0: It means after you made that stupid Jamie Lee Curtis movie, there's no way in hell we're giving you any money anymore.
1: Do you see what we did there? We gave you subtitles just like the film didn't. Moving on to bad reviews. Yeah, we
0: could have just made you guess.
1: So now we're going to talk about ratings and reviews.
0: If if you couldn't guess by now, the reviews for this movie were mostly negative. Yeah. When you have the star of the movie calling it the worst piece of shit she's ever been in, You can't really expect the critics to say much better than that. And they didn't. So, when the reviews for Virus finally did get released, which happened after the film had hit theaters, they were not good. The film currently holds. Wait for it. Are you ready? I'm ready for it. Are you ready? 10% on Rotten Tomatoes out of 48 reviews. 10%. Definitely
1: our lowest scoring movie of this year.
0: It is is not a good score by any means. Um, And audiences didn't think it was much better because it has a 21% audience score. So they at least bumped it up a little bit. You know, it's not a complete failure among audiences. And I have to say for myself, I'd probably be closer to that 21% mark than the 10% mark. It's kind of a fun movie. It's it's not good at all. Don't get me wrong. It's a bad movie. But like, it, it has redeeming qualities.
1: Yeah, it does. I agree with that.
0: It's it's not it's not a solid 10. I think that's a little unfair. But anyway, as per the use, we pulled some reviews, both positive and negative, for this movie. It was harder to find the positive ones than the negative but ones. But we did for it. For sure. But we got one for you. And I'm going to read it, and I'm going to make Jared read the negative ones. The positive review comes from Kevin Thomas of Los Angeles Times, and I'm assuming that he has been fired because of this review, because it proved that he was inept as a film Actually, he was a
1: very, like, like well-regarded critic.
0: (laughs) No, Jared, he was fired after this. Here's what he said. Quote, an unpretentious, amusing, thrill-a-minute sci-fi horror thriller monster movie that plugs right into the fears of the Y2K crisis. And I think that really gets to the point of this movie because it's not good, but it's not necessarily supposed to be like Oscar quality either. It is a popcorn movie. It is a sci-fi horror thriller. And it does that part pretty well. Like, if we're talking dialogue and plot and horror movies as an entire genre... Those are not the most positive points of those movies anyway. No. So, you know, it's kind of right up there with, with some of its competition. Marshall Bell, who was in the cast of the film, remarked in a piece in the LA Times the following regarding Thomas's review. Quote, As a member of the cast of The Virus... And I like that he calls it the virus, even though it's just called virus. I'd like to humbly thank Kevin Thomas for his kind words. From the standpoint of those of us who worked so hard on that film, it was heroic of him to give us that kind of attention. And that's hilarious. Because yeah. what he said really isn't that nice to begin with. It's just not horrifyingly mean, which is what most of these are. So, so there you go. So this isn't necessarily like an official review of the movie, but... Here's a comment that was made on a blog called outofthequicksand.blogspot.com because this movie came out in 1999, remember? And it was talking about the comic book series. And the piece mentions the movie and provides a little bit of a positive spin on the legacy of the film. Here's the quote. You have to admire Chuck Farr. He wrote a script designed to emulate big, dumb techno-thriller action movies with a bunch of sweaty, unlikable people toting guns, yelling at each other, calling themselves by their surnames, and blowing shit up. And by God, it eventually got made into a big, dumb techno-thriller action movie with a bunch of sweaty, unlikable people toting guns, yelling at each other, calling themselves by their surnames, and blowing shit up. That has to count for something. And I agree. Yeah.
1: I agree with that 100%. It's a film that it's it's exactly like you said. It is what it is. It is not supposed to be top-tier Oscar quality. It's just supposed to be a popcorn
0: movie. Sometimes you don't want to think when you're watching a movie. You just want to see some crazy shit. Yeah. And this is a movie that if you don't want to think and you just want to see some crazy shit, Totally it. agree. I think that... It's, it's It sucks. It sucks, but it's 100% worth the $4 on Amazon to rent it.
1: I love watching Complex films that I love watching complex things that you have to like dissect. You're talking about it for months after, but then there's sometimes where I just want to sit down and I'm like, I'm going to have a drink and I'm just going to watch some shit blow up. And that's, that's all you can ask for.
0: Here's the thing. I enjoyed every fucking minute of this movie, despite the fact that it sucks. And it's like, like you could say the same thing almost about something like Pacific Rim, right? Like it's like, like, Guillermo del Toro is just sitting in his fucking bathtub smashing action <laughs> figures together and somebody's filming it. And that's what Pacific Rim is. And it's not an Oscar quality movie. No, but it's a lot of fun. Like I, but it's it's a fucking blast. And that's kind of what Virus is like. It's not as good as Pacific Rim. Don't get me wrong. But it, it's that same idea of like, okay, do I really think that Tokyo Drift is a good movie? No. Do I enjoy watching it? Yeah, yeah. I do. I do I like to admit that? Not really, but... It's fun. It is what it is. Here we are.
1: So, this brings us to our negative review, and it's... Obviously, there were a lot of these to dig through. I've remarked on the show before that I admire Roger Ebert's writing. I thought he was a great critic, Um, and the 90s was kind of a big era for him, and as much as Roger Ebert was heralded as a great critic for his film writing about positive film and being able to dissect each year... He was also noted for having very funny negative reviews, and this is one of them. We're going to get to a few of them when it comes time for stuff like Deuce Bigelow um, and another film.
0: The movie that Jared, again, started this podcast just so he could talk <laughs> about because he loves Rob Schneider that much.
1: And another film called 200 Cigarettes, which came out in 99, that, got, that he gave a zero. So... He,
0: he has and that's a movie about my grandmother and how many cigarettes she smoked while she was making Rice Krispie Jesus Treats Jesus Christ that's a fun fact she used to give us Rice Krispie Treats that had little black specks in them oh my god. and at one point my dad thought she was putting pepper in them no <laughs> oh, it was ashes oh from her cigarettes
1: my god wow yep
0: so that's a movie about my grandma it's a biopic about Delphia Tucker enjoy it
1: my god so this negative review from Roger Ebert he gave the film one star And he begins by remarking that the film is eerily similar to 1998's Deep Rising. And then he says this. (laughs) Deep Rising was one of the worst movies of 1998. Virus (laughs) is easily worse. It didn't oh, no. help that the print I saw was so underlit that often I could see hardly anything on the screen. Was that because the movie was filmed that way or because the projector bulb was dimmed to extend its lifespan? I don't know, and in a way, I don't care, because to see this movie more clearly would not be to like it better. He <laughs> continues through the review, and at the end, last paragraph, he says this. The last half hour of the movie is almost unseeable.
0: I have to stop you for a second, Jared, because the last half hour of the movie is the best part. Yeah. So that really says... So, so
1: he says, The last half hour of the movie is almost unseeable. In dark dimness, various human and other figures race around in a lot of water and flashlight beams, and there is much screaming. Occasionally an eye, a limb, or a body f- or a bloody face emerges from the gloom. Many instructions are shouted. If you can explain to me the exact function of that rocket tube that turns up at the end, I will be sincerely grateful. If you can explain to any... If you can explain how anyone could survive that function, I will be amazed. The last shot is an homage to The African Queen, a movie I earnestly recommend instead of this one. And I've seen The African Queen. It's fantastic, but also like two different apples and oranges, two different films.
0: I've seen airplane safety videos that are better than this movie. So, you know, I mean, yeah. Roger slinging some hot fire at virus. Yeah.
1: And with, the, and with all of the negativity we just shared, let's talk about how, if this film has lasted beyond 1999.
0: Yeah. The legacy section on this podcast is typically several minutes long. I don't think it's going to be this week because there's not much of a legacy for this movie. In fact... As I alluded to before, it's so difficult to find information about this movie that I actually had to click onto the second, third, and even fourth pages of the (laughs) Google search results. So there's not much of a legacy at all. Part of that has to do with the coronavirus, because if you Google the word virus now, you get a lot of shit that that is in no way related to this movie. So it's a little challenging. But anyway, there are a few lasting quote-unquote legacies for virus of 1999. And here they are. One was a video game, but it wasn't much better than the movie. Yeah. In 1999, a French video game developer called Cryo, a.k.a. Cryo Interactive Entertainment, released Virus It Is Aware on the original PlayStation. It was an action horror third-person shooter that was loosely based on the movie. So we're looking at something that's kind of like Resident Evil style almost. That first-person gloomy, spooky shooter game, right? It didn't really have anything to do with the film at all, which is probably good, to be honest, for the video game. It was just loosely based off of it. And the game has fallen into obscurity, and it's pretty poorly regarded, understandably so. Uh, Like we mentioned earlier, the comic book got a re-release with the fancy Jamie Lee Curtis and Billy Baldwin movie cover on the front. Uh, And to be honest with you, I'd be more likely to buy something that didn't have (laughs) Billy Baldwin on it. So there you go. Um, And finally, lastly... the the, Jamie Lee Curtis to her dying day is going to do two things. She's going to eat yogurt and she's going to hate this fucking movie, but that's it. Other than like waking Jamie Lee Curtis up in the middle of the night with cold sweats, this movie doesn't have much of a legacy. This podcast is probably the most that anyone has spoken about this movie since. And I'm happy that
1: we can do that though, because I think every movie does deserve some kind of like it's, it's day in court, so I'm I'm happy that we're talking about it.
0: It is it is both our, our our pride and joy, and our obligation to bring these things to you. And this episode is on one end of the spectrum more than the other, and I'll let you decide which one. Yes, that is.
1: and just know it's going to get a lot worse from here. But anyway, we have some burning question. We have one burning question that I wrote. This kind of goes back to something I asked throughout the show, but. What else are the aliens there for? They're trying to kill the humans on the ship, but what after that? It's not clearly explained. Are they intent on world domination? Are they trying to kill all the humans on the Earth? Are they just trying to blow up the ship and then go off to whatever galaxy the aliens from Xenon, the sequel, were in? Because that's kind of the feel that I got from this. So, what no, is it? They,
0: Jared? they're trying to take over the Earth. It's it's explained clearly in the movie. It's one of the few things that is explained clearly in the really? movie. Yes, they're trying to go—the alien wants to take over the ship because the ship is one of the things on Earth that has a comm link to outer space, and that's where the alien is. So the alien can go from space to the near space station, comm link down to the Volkov ship. From there, it can take over the electronics, and it can sail the ship— Anywhere that it wants to go. If you remember in the movie, the ship is steering itself. It writes itself. Right, it right, right, right. Points itself into the wind to avoid being uh, capsized in the typhoon, and so it can steer itself. And where it wants to steer itself to is to this obscure island off the coast of Australia that has a bunch of satellites that link up with a bunch of worldwide communication systems. Because from that island and from that satellite, it can beam itself out with this weird little lightning pulse to energy everybody on to earth. all the other communication systems in the earth, And from there, it can take over all the technology, and it can build its little bugs, and then it's cyborg people, and then it's Goliaths on all the continents, and it can take over the entire planet. Man,
1: I did not get that. What
0: its goal is after that, I do not know. I don't know why it wants to take over the planet. It doesn't seem to need our resources for any reason, but it's here to fuck shit up, and that's all that matters. All right. I'll take it. I I will... Wow, I understood this movie much better than I was than about I thought to say. I,
1: did. I didn't understand that much of it, so good, good on you. I just, I just looked at it as shit blowing up and things going wrong. But anyway,
0: it's as clear as day if you were paying attention. Not, re- not really. But I, I, I did pause. And, and rewind and rewatch a few scenes. There you time, go. So. Um,
1: all right. So let's get to our reactions and close out this much shorter episode than we're usually used to. Congratulations to everybody hanging in there. But um, Andrew, let's start with your reactions. What did you like and dislike about this movie?
0: All right. I'm going to start with my dislikes because I think that's the obvious place to go. And I'd like to end on a positive note because we've kind of been shitting on this movie the whole time. So let's let's do our dislikes first and then our likes okay my dislikes for a horror movie this movie really isn't very horrifying that's that's one of the big problems i have with it there are a couple of jump scares including the title card which just comes in like a fucking wrecking ball and if you're not prepared for it will make you jump out of your goddamn seat but it's kind of the scariest thing in the whole movie so there you go uh that said the director does a decent job of building up tension there's like a good a good kind of building up of like ooh, here's the spooky thing i wonder what's gonna happen so you know it's not as awful as it could be but those reveals don't usually pay off very well because the whole thing is pretty predictable and it makes those things fall kind of flat second the acting is capital b capital a capital d bad it is bad Donald Sutherland, who's a good actor, spends most of the movie floating in and out of some kind of vague Irish or Scottish accent. And it's convenient that both of those adjectives end in the word ish because it's not really either of them. And I didn't even know he was supposed to have an accent until 53 minutes into the movie where he says something in an accent. And I was like, wait a second. He hasn't said anything else with an accent for the first hour of the. It's kind of like
1: when you watch Star Wars and... Uh Princess Leia speaks in plain normal English and then suddenly she has a British accent for a second and you're like, wait, what the fuck? She's supposed to have an accent?
0: And then it cuts back and it's like nothing ever happened. Yep, yeah, it's it's not good. Also in terms of acting, for being the quote-unquote scream queen, Jamie Lee Curtis's screams and shit are not very convincing either. It's very over the top and I don't believe it. And really, like, this kind of puts the 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 cherry on top of the acting summary, but if Billy Baldwin is the best actor in the movie, you know you have a problem. That's not supposed to be the case. So I, I the acting, I did not like. The writing is also bad. For one, I can't stand how Marshall Bell keeps saying Richie at the end of every goddamn sentence. He's like, what is this shit, Richie? That's an awful lot of blood, Richie. Richie, Richie, Richie. One of the first things you learn in screenwriting is like, no one says another person's name at the end of every sentence. It just doesn't happen. And it's like, Jesus Christ, the little half-baked romance story between Jamie Lee Curtis and Billy Baldwin is absolute nonsense. And it it doesn't pay off, but it's like, it's like it doesn't build up in the first place, but then they act like it's going to pay off and then it doesn't. It's like, just don't do it. The exposition is handled terribly the, the line, there's a line in this movie, and I, I alluded to this earlier when they're on the tugboat and Donald Sutherland's character says, the cargo is mine. I've leveraged everything I own against it and it's not insured. And I'm just like, Are, what? That sounds pretty fucking stupid, man. And then there's the, <laughs> there's the line where she, where she sees the boat for the first time and she goes, she looks Russian. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's fucking eight foot tall Russian yeah. letters painted on the side of the boat, you dipshit. And then the, the whole thing with Richie going like full nature boy on everybody and like wigging out. And then suddenly he's just like back to normal. And he's like, I made this escape pod. You should use it. I'm going to sacrifice myself for your life. And then he, it's like, what? That doesn't make any sense. And then the dialogue, Jared, is just so unbelievably stunted. And there are tons of examples but I'm going to just read you my favorite one. Okay. And when they're on the tugboat and they're arguing about whether or not they should cut the cargo free to survive the typhoon, Donald Sutherland pulls a gun on Billy Baldwin and Billy Baldwin, understandably gets upset. And he goes, you ever pull a gun on me again? And then Everton goes, you'll what? And then Baldwin goes, you figure it out. (laughs) what the fuck
1: yeah there's there's bad writing in this for sure oh my
0: my god that said though uh, and i'm transitioning into my likes there are a couple of lines that i thought were very funny and kind of clever in the movie i really like when alexi's little cyborg body first kind of pops back to life on the table up on the bridge and they get freaked out and curtis says touch it again i'll cut your hands off and then Sherman Augustus's character goes, "I can respect I can that." Respect that. <laughs> I I thought that line was, that was funny. A great line. I like that. I like when the aliens are first starting to fuck with Squeaky and he goes, "I'm a friend. I'm Cuban. I'm not American." <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. Really just clever and timely. Um, and then I like when, <laughs> this is what cracks me up. And it, it's not a good line, but I loved it when the alien thing goes, "English?" Do you speak English? And then Jamie and then Jamie Lee Curtis just goes, Fuck you. <laughs> and then the thing goes, English. <laughs> Dude, holy shit. It's so stupid, but yeah. it's so funny. And just like in general related to that, Jamie Lee Curtis just screams, Fuck you at several characters throughout this movie. And it's so fucking funny to me because one of the things that I like about this is like I love when a screenwriter writes something that a person would actually say in that situation. And there are so many times in this movie where I would just go, fuck you, if I was in that yeah. situation. And I loved that They just went for it. I thought that was great. From an acting standpoint, I mentioned that most of it was very bad. I thought Billy Baldwin was actually pretty good, but I thought Joanna Pacula was like a real bright Agreed. spot. Her acting was pretty fantastic in this. Maybe except for the scene where she goes for the granola bar, which is a little over the top. And finally, I really, really love the campy horror and gore in the movie. There is so much fucking just... just unnecessary gore in this movie and it's not like saw levels where it's like really realistic but it's nasty they do a pretty fucking good job of capturing it to be honest like the cyborg Alexi is badass the piles of skeletons in the machine shop the human teeth in the robots mouths all the blood everywhere the skin wings on the little flies the brain extraction scene all of that shit is pretty goddamn convincing and it's just like it, it takes this movie up to a notch where I don't even think it really deserves to be so I like that I, li- I like that a lot awesome that was that was a yeah, really thorough you,
1: analysis of this so I'm gonna do the same thing mine is not as detailed and as long um, I feel like you summed up a lot of very similar feelings that I had. So I'll just kind of, I guess, accentuate on that. One of them was something that you just brought up, which is that this is not a horror movie. This is maybe a sci-fi thriller. This is maybe something like that, but it is not what I would consider a horror film. You touched on this a bit when you answered the burning question, but what bugged me so much is that the aliens in this are not well-defined. I now understand more what they're trying to do as you explained it, but they're just kind of there. Like, they're almost there just to be a villain and just to be a force for them to fight against. There's no greater risk that they're going to destroy the world. There's no greater risk that as to why they're trying to destroy the world. They're just kind of there, and they're just an expositional story point, to me at least.
0: I was almost going to say the opposite, right? Which is, like, for the, for the blatant, on-the-nose, Basil exposition-style exposition that we get in this movie... The one thing they don't explain is who the fuck are these aliens what the fuck do they want right like there's some clues but it's like you're making it everything else just like so like second grade reading level
1: there's a boat what kind of boat is it hold on let me get this book that I happen to have here that says every kind of thing oh it's this one wow it looks kind of Russian oh oh wow it is a Russian boat okay yeah
0: yep and then this thing which is the entire reason for the whole movie happening doesn't get explained weird i i'm kind of okay with it but i'm also not like i'm i'm on i'm on the fence for my positives um the special
1: effects and the makeup in this film are very cool I think that, uh, like we said before, it does a great job of blending practical and CGI together to make something that was really unique. Even though the film is bad, it has some really amazing stuff. Like, in I almost want to call it like the creature shop when all the like gore and all that shit is laid out everywhere. It's awesome in the way that it's blended.
0: And well, dude, and I will say the CGI in this movie is better than it is in The Mummy, and it's better than it is in Star Wars uh, The Phantom Menace.
1: I don't know if I would go that far about Star Wars.
0: Well, it, I think this monster looks better than Jar Jar.
1: Okay, aside from Jar Jar. Like, I, I think everything else holds up a lot better than that. But anyway. Um,
0: the do motherfucker oh was responsible, so, so I don't know.
1: And my final thing is, I don't hate this movie. I don't love it, but it wasn't nearly as bad as everyone had made it out to be. I feel like that's kind of where the idea of hyping something up and you're like, you're going in with high expectations or low expectations. And I went into this with extremely low expectations and it ended up being better than I thought. And to be honest, it's ended up it ended up holding up a lot better than a lot of other films have in terms of bad movies and as far as they go. But we can always count on Jamie Lee Curtis to just hate this movie until the end of time. Um, so that's pretty much it. I mean, you expanded on the, some of the finer points of the good and bad of this movie. So, yeah, there it is.
0: Hell yeah, dude. We did it. We, we did a short-ish episode. We did a shorter
1: episode, for sure.
0: Hell yeah. I feel like
1: next week might be a little bit longer, but we'll see how this goes. Um, next week, I'm super fucking excited to get into this one because I love horror movies. And we're going to be talking about 1999's The Haunting. Spooky. Starring Liam Neeson, Katherine Zeta-Jones, Lily Taylor, and Owen Wilson. Wow. wow. <laughs> this movie is streaming on Stars. Um, you can also stream it via Hulu if you have the Stars subscription, as well as on iTunes, Amazon, YouTube, wherever else you get your digital film rentals. So that is it for this week. Be kind. Rewind. We'll see you next week for The Haunting. Whoa. Good night.
0: Bye. Coming soon to theaters. There once was a house, a bright, happy home. Something bad happened. Now it sits all alone.
1: Is this where you're going? That's Hill House. It's perfect, isn't it?
0: You all suffer from sleep disorders. My job is to find out why. What's the deal with the Adams Family Mansion? I gotta be honest, I don't get a real strong sleep vibe from this place. Don't you love it here? This is so twisted. Calling it an insomnia study allows me to create a highly suggestive environment to observe the dynamics of fear. You don't tell the rats, they're actually in a maze. I just think Dr. Marrow's up to something. Have you ever kept something to yourself because you were afraid? All the time. I'm sorry. You scared the f-